Hey everybody, Father Edward Looney here, the host of How They Love Mary. And today's podcast, we're going to be speaking about Ireland and Celtic spirituality and Irish saints. And of course, St. Patrick is one of those great Irish saints. If you have a little Irish in you, or maybe even if you don't, go and get your pair of St. Patrick socks from Sock Religious. A link is in the show notes. Now on with today's show. Hello, I'm Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. In the Diocese of Green Bay, where I serve as a Catholic priest, Julianne Stans has worked for a number of years in several different capacities. She is the Director of Parish Life and Evangelization, and she is the recent author of Start With Jesus, How Everyday Disciples Will Renew the Church. She writes a column for the diocesan newspaper called A Space for Grace, and back on May 14th, I clipped out her little article and I said, I want to talk to her one of these days about this and make it into a little podcast episode for How They Love Mary. And today, we are having that conversation. So welcome to How They Love Mary, Julianne Stans. Thank you so much, Father Edward, and welcome to all those who are listening in today. It's good to be with you. So I don't know if people detected yet the Irish brogue or not, but you're an Irish lady, and you end up in all places in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You lived in Ireland, were raised there, everything like that. So I'm just curious. I know I've heard the story before, but could you share that story again of how you ended up in all places in Green Bay, Wisconsin, in the frozen tundra? Yeah, so I, I, it's a great story. It's a long one, but for brevity today, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. I was actually teaching and doing some undergraduate work at Matter Day Institute. So my love of all, all things Mary, you know, culminated in me actually studying at Matter Day in Dublin. And when I was um, taking my studies, um, one of my professors, Father Owen Cassidy, came to me and said, you know, Julianne, before you kind of go into the world of academia, I think it would be really important for you to kind of get out and experience life outside the four, four walls of this institution and also just to travel a little bit. And he said, he gave me a great lesson. He said, you know, the greatest distance that we make um, as Christians is about 18 inches. And it's the first time I had heard that. And I said, well, that's a short journey. And he said, no, 18 inches is the distance from your head to your heart. It's to translate what we're teaching you at college into a lived out heartfelt response in, in terms of your faith. He said, if I were you, I'd, I'd go down and I'd look at some teaching jobs and I would maybe take a year out from teaching here at the college and just teach somewhere um, around the world and then come back after that. And so I went down and on the notice board was a second grade teacher position um, in was a very, very rural area of Wisconsin. And I thought, I just had literally had that conversation. And I thought the Holy Spirit is really doing something here. So I submitted my resume and literally like within a week, I had, you know, done this interview over the phone and um, agreed to go to Wisconsin. And what was even more ridiculous about this whole thing, I had never heard of the state of Wisconsin. I didn't know that it was actually a place. I had heard about Milwaukee. I had heard of the place Milwaukee um, and I had heard of Chicago, but the, at the time that I was in living in Ireland, there was no Google. 
There were no internet cafes in my village, you know, back in the you know 90s and um, early 2000s. And so my whole understanding of coming to Wisconsin was very much skewed by um, not having access to information or knowing anyone that had lived and worked there. And so I actually drew a line from where I was working in northern Wisconsin and kind of lined up a little ruler across the map of the world and said, you know, I wonder what the weather is going to be like there. And it lined up with kind of northern Spain. And so I came here that first winter with a suitcase with no winter hat, no gloves, no boots, no anything um, to one of the snowiest winters on record with like consistent minus <laughs> 20 degree temperatures. And so one year became three and then I met my husband and um, ended up coming to the Diocese of Green Bay to work with Bishop Zubik and then Bishop Rickon. So you didn't start out in a rural parish in the Diocese of Green Bay. You started out somewhere else. Is that right? I did. I started off in a rural parish in the Diocese of Superior, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Okay. I was yeah. just up in Superior the other day. And so, yeah, very remote, very rural as you drive up there. So, um, beautiful, too. How So you talk about Ireland and, you know, Milwaukee, you mentioned, of course, has the largest Irish music festival outside of Dublin. So it is to my knowledge. And one of the things you do with the Irish Fest is that you teach Celtic spirituality. You teach different classes for uh, people to learn more about their Irish heritage. And could you just give some of the basics about what Celtic spirituality looks like? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I want to acknowledge right away that there are, there's been a popularization of Celtic spirituality, you know, with ancestry and people discovering their roots and their DNA chain. Um, I think there's been a real popular explosion around Celtic spirituality. But when it's divorced from its early Christian Catholic roots, that's when I get very concerned. And so part of the reason why I want to speak at Irish festivals around um, Celtic spirituality is because of the culture piece. You can go to Ireland on a tour and you can see a lot of the highlights. But if you want to enter into the culture of the Irish people as a pilgrim and really understand their journey, you have to understand the faith context of the of the early Christian churches in Ireland and how they developed. And at the center of, of early Christian Ireland, you know, you have the figure of St. Patrick and St. Bridget and, you know, as two spiritual giants. But it's a very theocentric culture, which basically means that in our language and our beliefs and our practices, God is at the center of all of those. So to give you a very simple illustration of that, the, the only way to say hello in, in, in the Irish language, which is called Gaelic, is dia gwit, dia gwit, which means God be with you. And mm. the, the proper response, um, and this gets to your podcast today, is dia is smurdet, which is God and Mary be with you. So when you're greeting someone in the Irish language, you are saying, God be with you. And the response is God and Mary be with you. And so part of why I love teaching at, you know, Irish Fest, which is the largest um, music festival in the U.S. actually around Irish identity is because I want people to understand that it's not just about the music. It's not just about the arts. It's not just about the crafts making or the beautiful manuscripts. They were all the fruit of this creative genius of the Irish who believed that leaning into our practices of faith and our traditions around the Blessed Mother actually will result in us being much more fruitful, much more um, creative in our lives. And so I try and showcase that a little bit. And also, I will be honest, I, I also want to undercut some of the kind of mis, 
understandings of what true Celtic spirituality is and what is it, what's really important to the Irish um, rather than just this kind of popular romantic notion of what it is and it's not really true. What are some of those things that are important to the Irish people in terms of their spirituality? Well, I think if you look at the development of Celtic spirituality and the context of early Christian Ireland, you find some very, very simple practices um, so, you know, one of them, for example, is the encircling prayers, or we've come to know like St. Patrick's Larica, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, his might to uphold me. Those binding prayers are actually called Larica prayer. And of course, a Larica that comes from the Latin is this Roman corselet that Roman soldiers would have worn going into battle. So it's this understanding of having an encircling around you for, for prayer and protection. So the encircling, it's known in Scotland as the kind. Um, those prayers were always grounded in relationship with Christ. And so those were very, very important. So you have this beautiful traditions of the Irish blessings, you know, may the road rise to meet you. But, you know, there's, there's blessings for, for baking bread. There's blessings for making the beds as you're going about your daily life. So the rhythm of prayer is really, um, it's, it's a rhythm that grounds, or has, had always grounded early Christian living in Ireland. And it's those beliefs and practices that I I'm most interested in looking at. You know, Ireland is famous for hospitality, but why is that? And so you have this beautiful, like, fourth century prayer that says, O king of stars, whether my house be dark or bright, may it not be closed to anybody. May Christ not close his house against me. So what is that saying? It's basically saying that, we extend hospitality to others because uh, we believe that Christ is deepest within the, within the heart of every person. And so we do as Christ commanded us to do, which is to welcome, to invite, and to bring people into the heart of our home. And we hope to receive the same welcome in heaven. So that hospitality piece has kind of gotten eroded, and it's those practices I love to bring back. Now, what's the story behind the Celtic cross? My understanding, the circle in the middle is representative of the sun, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Absolutely. So the Celts were sun worshippers. So the early pre-Christian Celts were sun worshippers. And they had four uh, fire festivals every year that took place. Um, Lunasa, Beltana, Samhain, and Imbolc. Imbolc was February 1st, so that's St. Bridget's Day in Ireland. May 1st, which is Bealtaine, Lunasa, which is the August, so that's the harvest festival, and then Samhain, which is around All Hallows' Eve or Halloween. And so those fire festivals represented different um, parts of the life of the Celts in terms of worship of the sun. They worship the god Lu, um, which is where Lunasa comes from. And it's interesting because I grew up in a mountainous village, and the highest mountain around that village is Lognaquilla which um, actually goes back to honoring the god Lou in the pre-Christian context. And when St. Patrick came to Ireland, he did something that I think is really beautiful as an evangelist. He didn't condemn, uh, well, I should nuance that a little bit. Certain practices he outrightly condemned with the Celts, such as headhunting and um, human sacrifice. And those died out in Ireland. But other practices Patrick sought to integrate. He did not seek to denigrate or destroy. And one of those practices was um, he tried to harmonize pre-Christian ideas and Christian ideas together. So the Celts worshipped the sun. And so St. Patrick took the Roman crucifix and encircled it with the sun because that is the true sun who will never die, which is Jesus Christ, the light of faith. And so in Patrick's confessio, which is one of the two sources of his life, 
with this beautiful understanding that Patrick brings to us, which is that the light of Christ is the light that never fades. And so the Celts came to venerate the, the cross of Jesus Christ um, as our true son, um, as our divine savior. And that belief and practice became very integrated. So you're correct, Father Edward. The Celtic cross is the encircling of the sun, which brought together the pre-Christian and Christian practices of the Celts. Lots of people, especially those who might claim Irish heritage, wear that Celtic cross. But there's another cross that's fairly popular, too, and that's the St. Bridget's cross. Can, can you share a little bit about that one? I have one up in display in my kitchen, for example. So, so I have one myself. And that's actually the kitchen is a very popular place to put the St. Bridget's cross because St. Bridget is often associated with protection against fire. So having her in the kitchen was always a part and parcel of the home. Um, I grew up very, very close to the monastic community that St. Bridget settled. And, you know, there's great sources of life and inspiration around her life and writings. She's associated in Ireland with a place called Kildare. And Kildara is the, is the Gaelic, and it means the Church of the Oak. And the oak tree was sacred to the Celts. It was always where they crowned their kings. And so um, St. Bridget really claimed this land for the true king, Jesus Christ. And there's these beautiful stories of St. Bridget and her magical cloak or her miraculous cloak spreading out across the plain of Ireland and claiming the land for Christ. But the cross that's associated with St. Bridget actually comes from a beautiful tradition. And many Irish children are, are taught this as, as children in school. Um, St. Bridget went to a pagan chieftain's bedside and she converted him to Christianity. And as she was telling him the story of Jesus Christ and his divine kingship over our lives, she was weaving with rushes this cross. And there's this beautiful little Irish prayer that talks about St. Bridget wove uh, a cross by a dying chieftain's bed. What's that there you're making, Bridget? And it goes on like this in this kind of sonic pattern. It's really cute. Irish children learn it. And so we make those crosses um, for the feast day of February 1st. Now, there's an interesting little legend associated with St. Bridget I want to tell you about. Um, St. Bridget is associated with, uh, with the oak, with the oak trees. Um, and in this part of Ireland, which is very flat, the oak trees um, were very, very evident. St. Bridget was associated with the fire because smith working and metal working was also carried out at her monastic community. She was the abbess there. And so fire is very much a part of the legends of St. Bridget. And if you go to Kildare to this day, you're going to see a flame in the town of Kildare that represents the flame of light that St. Bridget brought to that community. It's interesting because that, that light burned for 1,200 years continuously until it was ordered, ordered to be doused by King Henry VIII. Um, so it was doused temporarily and then the Irish relit it again. So it's a beautiful tradition. But the flame is, that's often represented is yellow or kind of a burnished bronze or red. And there's a lovely tradition of um, on the eve of St. Bridget's Feast Day, so that's January 31st, to go out and tie a yellow ribbon around an old oak tree. And as St. Bridget passes by that night, she pours her blessings and her prayerful gratitude to the Lord into this ribbon. And then you take the ribbon into your house. And that ribbon is often put around children who have sore throats oh. um, because St. Bridget is associated with healing. So there's an old song. There's a song that you might know, which is tie your yellow ribbon around an old oak tree. And certainly yellow 
yellow ribbons in this country were used to welcome soldiers back to, from war. But a lot of a lot of folklorists and Celtic spiritual um, uh, teachers will often surmise that that practice came from this lovely tradition associated with St. Bridget and the oak tree. Oh, wow. You know, one of my biggest regrets from my Ireland trip a few years ago is that I was driving and I saw the exit for Kildare and I didn't stop. I'm like, I should have got off the exit and explored the little town. I probably would have saw that fire and would have seen other things uh, associated with St. Bridget there. We can tell it's very evident that uh, Celtic spirituality, the love of Ireland that you have in your heart, but of course, another love you have is for evangelization, for discipleship, for the Lord Jesus, and that's your current role. You aid discipleship and evangelization here in the Diocese of Green Bay, even on a greater level with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops as uh, uh, an advisor or whatever your capacity might be for them. And, and so how did you develop then in your life and your ministry, this passion for evangelization and discipleship? You know, I think the best, that's a great question. And it's, 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 I'd say it's multifaceted. There's been so many people in my own life. Like my grandmother had such a devotion to our lady. And I think about, you know, our parish priest growing up and his witness to the rosary and going to knock as a child. And all of those pieces kind of were part and parcel of my life. I was educated by the Sisters of Mercy and they were the most incredible women. Um, the lessons that they taught me, I still go back to today. The rhythm of prayer, being grounded in gratitude, um, welcoming the marginalized and the stranger, all of those things I learned from growing up in Ireland. Um, I realized, though, that um, after I finished school um, and college um, and came over to the U.S., there was a great kind of burgeoning growth of um, parish life and different ministries. And I saw very uh, beautifully how most American Catholics, many American Catholics, had this tremendous desire and heart to reach out to those that weren't practicing their faith or maybe a loved one or a family member that had stopped going to mass or whatever it was or been wounded in some way. And I would listen to their stories and became very, very passionate about sharing good news, which is what evangelization is all about, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and, and, and the beauty of the Catholic Church. And so that really set my heart on fire. And um, the role that I have now is to support parishes to really raise up um, from good-hearted, ordinary people, just like Jesus did. He took ordinary people, he set their hearts on fire, and they transformed the world. And so that's been a part of my, my message for and part of the work that I've been doing. Um, I do consult for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. I'm in my 10th year doing that. Um, the last chair that I uh, reported to is Bishop Robert Barron, who's probably very familiar to your listeners. Um, the new chair is Bishop Andrew Cousins from the Archdiocese of Minneapolis. And we're re focusing very much right now on rekindling a Eucharistic love um, in our parishes and in our church um, for, for the Eucharist. And so uh, I've been doing that for a number of years, and it, it just baffles me, Father Edwards, that um, a girl can go from living in a very small town in the mountains of Ireland to working to support the church in, um, in America. But I love it. I always say to people, Ireland is my homeland. And I still think of it as my home, but America is my heartland because I just love the heart of American people so much and their, their goodness and generosity. 
One of the things you've done is you've written lots of books on discipleship and your latest, I believe, is Start With Jesus, How Everyday Disciples Will Renew the Church. And another form of writing you do each week, as I mentioned earlier, is that you write a little article in the Compass, the diocesan newspaper for Green Bay. And this article you wrote, Crushing the Seven Ds of Darkness with the Blessed Mother, I just wanted to unpack some of it uh, with you today. I thought you brought out some great points about Mary. And of course, this article was written for the month of Mary, where lots of people develop a devotion to Mary. But this podcast is all about a, a lifelong, year-long devotion to Mary and instilling that in our life. And one of the things you said in this piece you wrote was that Mary points us to Jesus, and so should we point others to Jesus as well. I guess, you know, as we look at discipleship and evangelization, well, how can ordinary people point to Jesus in their daily life, just like Mary did? It's a great question. So, I, you know, I think about the model of Jesus a lot. You know, what did Jesus do and what did he ask us to do? And I realized, you know, that a lot of our conversations around evangelization and discipleship can feel kind of scary to the average Catholic who's like, I don't know this language. It doesn't feel familiar to me. I'm a little scared to go out and share my faith in case people think I'm judging them. I mean, I hear this a lot. Um, and I think about that model of Jesus in terms of taking average, ordinary fishermen, uh, women who are merchants and and just sharing life together and setting their hearts on fire through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to share the good news. And I think at the center of that message stands the Blessed Mother. And there's so many elements of the Blessed Mother's life in her simplicity, in her desire to do what the Lord asked her to do that I feel like are such good models for us in evangelization. And the Irish, of course, have this special understanding of the Blessed Mother. Ireland is unique in terms of our language in having given Our Lady prominence. And so I mentioned that earlier in the salutation, but there's a beautiful Irish word, wira, um, wira, which is which means the Blessed Mother. So we have, we don't just call her Mary, we, we have this word that transcends just the name Mary, which is beautiful in and of itself, but actually means the Blessed Mother. And so a popular um, diminutive of that name is Mwirin, which is this beautiful name of one who wants to be like Mary. And I think that for us as Catholics, that has to be a part of our life. You know, in she pondered things in her heart, so she was a prayerful, contemplative person, but she also went with haste, so she could get a move on. And that's what I love about her. Her witness is so accessible and practical. Um, and so when she says to us, do whatever he tells you to do, you know, that's complicated. But yet she herself teaches and points us to, to the way. And I guess where this really um, kind of hit home for me in a sense was when I went to Ballantubber Abbey, which I know you've been to as well, Father Looney, um, in the west of Ireland. There's an image that has stayed with me. It's a 12-foot a, a statue of the Blessed Mother, and she's portrayed in stone. And it's, it's quite a stark image because it's chipped from granite. It's, you know, very, very strong stone. And her arms are outstretched uh, with Jesus, and she has Jesus held up facing outwards. And it, it got my mind starting to think about classical art and how Mary and Jesus's relationship are depicted. And many times you'll see, you know, the Blessed Mother has Jesus, the baby Jesus tilted away from her because her life, her life points to Jesus, not just to herself. And I think for us as evangelizers, those who are in public ministry, our lives shouldn't just point to ourselves but should always point to Jesus, to the Blessed Mother who stands beside us, 
And so she's been a huge, huge part of my life growing up ever since I was a child. So what you do in this article, uh, you say, and you quote Pope Emeritus Benedict, you bring out some of his writing about this. And this is a very common image we see Mary crushing the serpent's head because it was said in Genesis that the serpent would be crushed by a heel. And so we often have taken that to be the Blessed Mother. And we see that as Mary as the new Eve. And we could go into so much about that. And so you say not only does she crush evil, but she also crushes the darkness. And so there is darkness in our lives. And you bring out seven different points. And of course, I write articles similar to this, where you kind of come up with some sort of paradigm and you kind of write about that. And so you came up with seven areas of darkness in our life that Mary can help us by her example, that she can help us by her prayer. So I thought maybe we could just take one by one and talk a little bit about them. And of course, I know that when you write something, uh, you are restricted to a word count. And so here yeah. we're not restricted to a word count. So um, the, the first area of darkness in a person's life, you, you say, is dismissal. That uh, in a sense that we can dismiss God, we can dismiss his grace or whatever that might look like. So how is Mary helping to crush dismissal in our life? No, I th this a, it's a great question. And thank you for referencing this too. I wanted to write an article that really talked about what does crushing darkness look like and what kind of darkness does people, do people sometimes find themselves in? And I think dismissal is one of them. Like I couldn't possibly share my faith. I don't know enough. I'm not holy enough. And I really wanted to look at Mary's littleness no one was too small in God's plan of redemption um, to do great things. And I think the lives of the saints definitely teach us this. But Mary dismisses nobody. Jesus Christ never dismisses anyone. And I think when we think about the opposite of that in the culture or even the evil one who wants to discard and use people, you know, Jesus holds the value of everybody's life. And Mary reminds us, not because of her grandness, not because of her you know, what she knew or what she did, but because of who she was called to be and her yes, she, re she reminds us that um, the Lord would never dismiss any one of us. He can count every hair in our head. And so if you feel like life is discarding you or it's running you over right now, Mary, stay close to Mary and she can crush that feeling of dismissal that sometimes can come up as a result of situations or just life in general. I think, too, sometimes individuals kind of take to the Blessed Mother in a sense because maybe they're intimidated by the Lord, they're intimidated by God Almighty, but they see in Mary an advocate and one that, that can make their intercession on their behalf. And so there's less fear, perhaps, around this mother image of who Mary is. And, and we see that, I think, a lot at shrines, that people from all different walks of life come from wherever and they come to shrines of the blessed mother they could be a person you know battling deep sin in their life they could be a, a poor person whoever they are they're not dismissed the blessed mother receives them in her, into her abode especially at a shrine so there is no dismissal in mary no and i think one of the things too that we see is that her life of simplicity combats this next d which i talked about which is distortion you know, I think there's a, a tendency in our culture to distort either the, the human face of God, the human face of the person, to discard, to distort. I mean, it's getting harder and harder, I think, to live a simple life. And I think 
just with all the division and unrest that's out there these days, Mary's simplicity reminds us to stay the course and um, to to kind of lean on her when we feel like either our our motives or our life is being distorted by busyness, by addiction, by distraction, whatever those things are. Um, she reminds us to stay steadfast and con- con- constant. And that was, you mentioned the word distraction, which is your next D there, distraction. And, and I, you know, for Mary, she was wholeheartedly, single-heartedly dedicated to the will of God from when the angel comes and says, let it be done, she says, let it be done to me according to your word. And, you know, some of the traditions tell us that Mary was presented in the temple, that she lived in the temple. And so all her life, her entire focus was on God. So she never was distracted. Yeah, and I think one of the things I realized when I was writing even this article was my own tendency to be distracted. As a mom, all of these things are calling my name, you know, to, to, to do more. And I think that's one of the tendencies that we have in our culture is to do more, to be busy, to be distracted into oblivion. And I think Mary's witness reminds us that the most important aspect of the Christian life is to be, is to be still and know. So the be, it's not to do. And I think her witness reminds us that in being, in cultivating that simplicity of heart and mind and fixing our will on the Lord and his will for our lives, that that's where true joy comes in. And so I think there's a lot of tendency in our culture to to be distracted. And in fact, I think that's what the evil one wants many times for us to take, say, I couldn't do that. I can't be that. Or I've done this so the Lord could never do that in my life. Um, And I think that's where Mary is very important for us in reminding us of the small everyday things that we do in love that are a part of the Christian life. That's where greatness is actually happening. You know, do small things with great love, as Mother Teresa said. And I I believe Our Lady exemplified that. The next D is duplicity. And, you know, we hear that word and maybe some people don't even know what duplicity means. So what is duplicity? And again, how is uh, how is duplicity related to evil? And then Mary counteracts that evil and darkness. Duplicity is deception. I would call it sneakiness, you know, if I to use an Irish term. But duplicity is um, intentional seeking to distort or be um, casual with the truth. And, you know, our faith, the truth is a person, the truth is Jesus Christ. And I think Mary reminds us that duplicity, it should not be part of our Christian lives, that when we get ourselves into situations where, um, where we're being um, free and loose with the truth, let's say, um, that we are straying from the path of holiness. And I think the father of lies, I mean, we've used that term as one of the terms for for the evil one. Um, I think Mary reminds us that cloaking ourselves, and this is a very Irish practice too, is to imagine that Our Lady's mantle just covers you with grace to stay focused on truth. And I think that's one beautiful practice that you could incorporate into your regular prayer life. Like when I get home from work, sometime I have to go, I've driven home from work and I go into my house, I just take that minute uh, just imagine that Our Lady has just cloaked me with her mantle of peace and truth so that I can go in to be the best mom that I can be for my children. So you can incorporate that very, very simply into your life in asking her intercession. Yeah, you mentioned truth there, and Jesus, of course, being the truth as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But 
We also know that there have been different heresies throughout the ages of the church, and and sometimes to counteract those heresies, they were a misunderstanding of who Jesus was, and we come to understand who Jesus was with his relationship with Mary. Kind of the most popular one is Mary as Theotokos, or Mother of God, or God-bearer. That some were saying, well, Jesus was, that Mary couldn't be the mother of the divine person of Jesus, that she could only be the mother of humanity. That was a heresy. And so we counteract that and respond to it. And so really, Mary helps to point us to truth. That is for sure. And another thing she does is that she wants to unite believers. She's the mother of all Christians. And so there is disunity sometimes. And that is one of the darknesses. That's one of the deceits of the devil. And uh, Mary can counteract disunity as well, can't she? Yeah, and I think if you look at the context of the world we live in, it can feel like it's very disordered. And it feels very divisive. And, you know, you hear that in lots of different ways that it comes into our life, whether it's, you know, divisiveness around sports or divisiveness around political affiliations. And I think, you know, there is a tendency to be distracted by that, to go back to one of the earlier D's that I talk about, and then also to be very discouraged by that. And I feel like disunity is one of the marks of the evildoer, as you said, Father Looney. And I think we need to be conscious of that. Mary wants all Christians to be united, and she wants Catholics to live a joyful life, loving and sharing their faith. She doesn't want to see us fragmented by culture. She doesn't want to see us stray from the path of holiness. And so she she longs for unity more than we long for unity. She's the mother of unity in the church. And, you know, she is the person that um, I think we need to lean into when I think divisiveness and disunity is bubbling up even in our family lives. And that disunity can lead to discouragement as well. And I think we can look at, some people could look at the church today and and we see, you know, there's such divisiveness over, you know, the left or the right or whatever topic it might be, the, the old mass and the new mass, all of these things. And so we can become discouraged by the lack of disunity, especially in the church. But yet again, Mary can encourage us, can't she? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel personally out of a lot of the the D's that we have talked about, the discouragement is very active right now. And in fact, I I spoke to somebody um, at the USCCB and one of our bishops, and he said, you know, one of the ways that our church is being attacked is to discourage our priests. And and I that really, really um, kind of caught my heart. And I prayed about that a lot. And and I think about, you know, the work of um, our priests in consecrating the Eucharist and bringing us uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ and how um, how disunity and discouragement can really gnaw away at the peace of our priests, but even at our own hearts. And the word encourage, one of the lovely French um, old words for encourage is to put heart into. And I think about that. You know, if we talk about the Immaculate Heart of Mary and having a heart like Mary, like you have been talking about, Father Edward, and um, to put heart into, to put back into the heart of the church, a heart like Mary's, that is what can be such a source of encouragement for, for so many people who are struggling today and are really feeling a sense of despair about the culture. And I think one of the best ways that you can increase encouragement in your life is to focus on praying the Magnificat, which is her song of praise and reminding ourselves that a heart overflowing with gratitude and joy can resist much more easily the temptation of discouragement. 
for sure. And then, you know, so the apostles, they really could have been discouraged, you know, except for John, the other 10, 11, they leave Jesus. He dies alone with his mother and Mary Magdalene and John the Beloved beneath the cross. And so they could have had despair in their life. And even for Judas, there was destruction because he goes and he he hangs himself. So I always look to this moment as the apostles coming back and Mary comforting them. And, and this really was brought out in Roma Downey's film, The Resurrection, that, that Mary was a mother to them and she wanted them to have this hope that he will come back. He promised that he would come back. And so there she was helping despairing individuals have that hope that they needed. And this is another way that Mary shines light into darkness, especially that of despair and destruction. Absolutely. And I think discouragement can easily slide into despair and destruction. And I think then we become cynical, we become jaded, um, our prayer life can really suffer. Um, this is where I think Our Lady really reminds us in the darkest moment um, of our lives, she stands steadfast and solid at the foot of the cross. And I have a little personal story around kind of despair and destruction. Um, my husband a year ago, actually, um, was was going to the city dump and was kind of dumping off some, you know, extra trees that he had clipped and all kinds of things. And he came back and I saw him coming down the road and he, I could see something in the passenger seat of his car that was strapped in with a seatbelt. And he was so excited. He ran into the house and he said, you're not going to believe what I found. I found a statue of Mary and mm -hmm. someone left her overlooking the dump. And oh, my heart bled when I saw her and she was you know, she was still so beautiful. And there she was. And I remember thinking to myself, life feels like it dumps on people a lot. And there's something about Our Lady of Grace, because she was at the she was on the top wall of the dump overlooking like, and life sometimes can feel like it dumps on us. And, you know, Mary appears in the places where things are discarded, where people feel most broken, where there's most despair and destruction. I think about Our Lady of Nach appearing during the destruction and the despair that people felt during the famine, Our Lady of Lourdes, um, Our Lady of Cabijo. And she she doesn't always appear at these places that are pristine, clean, and you know people are fully receptive. She appears in these places um, that are rent by destruction and despair. And so, um, so that we took the statue into our home and we cleaned her up and we put her in our yard and we had this little space for her and then Literally almost a year to the day, some twisters went through, some tornado winds went through Wisconsin about two weeks ago, very close to your parish too, Father Edward. And um, our birch tree came down very close to our house and took out our whole fence, which is concreted in. And my husband went out to take some pictures. And in the middle of all this destruction, our fences knocked over. Our lady was still standing. Oh, wow. And I thought, what a great message that... You know, in any storm, like we learn in the, in the Gospels, keep your eye focused on Jesus. But when the storm hits, lean into the Blessed Mother because she will remain standing and steadfast just like she stood at the foot of the cross. 
Wow, that's an incredible story. And there are so many stories like that where you see Mary in the midst of kind of the chaos of what has just happened in war or in fire. And there her statue is somehow protected. And really, people can then, again, have that hope and confidence uh, in her prayers and in her intercession. We've had such a lovely conversation, Julianne, about Celtic spirituality, about the Blessed Mother, and I'm very grateful uh, for our conversation today. Sometimes I end the podcast with like a little Marian profile, but I I just thought maybe today I I wanted to ask you a few things uh, about Ireland, some of your favorite things from Ireland, and that would be a nice way to close. But uh, what's your favorite city in Ireland? I have to say I love Kilkenny, which um, is about 45 minutes from where I grew up. It's a medieval city. It's beautiful cobbled streets. Kilkenny Castle is there. Um, It's got a lively tradition, very, very fun social scene. So Kilkenny is my favorite. I thought maybe you would say Glendalough, but that's also a medieval village or or historic village. But yeah, that would be probably my favorite town because it's a lot smaller. I see. I got you. Yeah, it's definitely it meets. It's beautiful. How about your favorite Irish music or Irish band? Oh, gosh, that's a really hard one for me. I've always loved the Chieftains and the Wolf Tones. They're an old Irish band. And the, the one of the singers who has passed away is Luke Kelly. And if you just listen to anything, Luke Kelly is this gravelly Irish soulful voice. To me, his song is the essence of, of working Ireland. I'm a big fan, personally, of The High Kings. Oh, I love The High Kings, yeah. too. And uh, one of my favorite songs is The Green Fields of France. And uh, That's a great song. Yeah. And, and I just love the image of like them walking around, this individual, whoever it is, walking around, finding this grave in the cemetery, and then kind of just, you know, imagining what happened to this young lad, uh, you know, that he died in the war. So... Uh, how about a favorite Irish saint? Of course, Patrick, Bridget come to mind. You introduced me to St. Kevin because of Glendalough. And uh, yeah. so there are lots of Irish saints that we might not know of. So is there some Irish saint that is one of your favorites? So I do love St. Kevin because, you know, he's associated with County Wicklow in particular. And there's some beautiful traditions. But I think a really great saint that's often overlooked is um, St. Oliver Plunkett. Oh. And he was martyred by the British. Um, he was hung, half hung, half hung, drawn and quartered. But his head is is in a reliquary, and in um, just north of Dublin. And as a child, we would uh, often make a pilgrimage to go and visit um, Saint Oliver Plunkett. And it is an unusual shrine. It is a very poignant reminder of the persecution that many Irish Catholics faced under the British rule. And they also have the door of his cell in the church. And so it's a great way to reconnect with a, a saint that's often overlooked. Sure. And maybe just lastly, you've referenced some of these uh, Celtic prayers. Uh, is there one that you kind of maybe say regularly, repeat often, one that is your favorite? Absolutely. Um so there's one that's loosely based on one of the Laricas of St. Patrick, which is his prayer of protection. And, and I pray it with my children a lot. It's got a lot of um, imagery from creation, which is a metaphor. So when the sun, you're going to hear me reference the sun. It's actually a reference not for the, for the sun, the sky, but the sun, the spiritual sun, Jesus Christ. So it goes like this. 
by the rowan and the briar, by the raging forest fire, by the sky that's lightning torn, by the moon that's newly born, I bind my feeble soul to thee, almighty sun and spirit three. So the moon that's newly born is the full moon. It's an image of the Eucharist. The, the, um, the raging fire is an image of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a great prayer to pray with. It's one of my favorites. Sure. It encapsulates a lot of the Christian faith right there. So It really does. Well, that's wonderful. Julianne, do you have a website? Do you have, what, what are some of your other books? How can people learn more about you? Yeah, you can visit me at um, www.juliannestands.com. You can learn more about my writings and some of the work that I'm doing there. And you can also look out for my new book, which will be coming either in December or January. Um, it's on Celtic, the wisdom of Celtic spirituality and some lovely practices that harmonize with our Catholic faith. Um, around um, some old traditions associated with Ireland and Scotland. That's great. And perhaps the book might be available for pre-order or maybe not, but stay tuned for it and uh, I'll be sure to promote it in the future. So thanks so much, Julianne, for your time today and for sharing all of your wonderful wisdom with us. You are welcome. And I'd say to your listeners, Sláin August Bannock, which means goodbye and God bless. Aw, thank you so much.